name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, last time we stopped in chapter 3 was at the last church, which was the church of Laodiki. So, everybody have the, their Bibles, because uh, we're not going to start. We're not going to start the Bibles uh, on this time. Alright, so, what, can somebody read for us this church? And to the angel of the church of Laodiki, right? These things says the Ami, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed with the shame of your nakedness, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with the eyes sound, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. All right. So this is the church of Laodicea, which is the church of the people. Uh, Laodicea means the you know the rule of the people. It's like democracy comes you know from the same root as democracy, and as all these things are related to and controlled by the masses, I find this church is very similar, controlled also by the masses. I have one question. I think maybe I asked you, but I forgot. Are the names of the churches were they given to them? the locations after he wrote them to them? No. So they were the city's name, and they just happened to go along with it? Not happened. There's nothing in the Bible happens to I go along. Uh, these were particular churches in Asia Minor and had these names, and they were picked specifically for problems they had, and the problems coincided with their names. Again, there's nothing coincidence in the Bible at all. Not a single letter that's put there by mistake or by coincidence. Uh, so, and the, after the you know uh, few centuries, these churches, most all of them, vanished and disappeared because they did not hold fast to what the the Bible or what God told them to do. So they were basically all destructed. So the Church of Laodicea is you know Laos is the people. Uh, so Laodicea is represents the church of the people, which is like everybody has a say of what the church does. So uh, if we try to look at some of these things that are going on around us today with the, the churches, when the church become too democratic for everyone to give their opinion, even if they don't understand, even if they don't have spiritual stature, uh, becomes a problem. Uh, the church is not a dictatorship by all means nobody in the church said that there's a dictatorship and only the clergy or those people in the teaching position have the right uh, to teach 
But at the same time, if I don't have the Holy Spirit in me, how can I know what God wants? I remember I had a friend from uh, work. His brother was doing a PhD in you know something about the Book of Revelation and all that. And you know, again, you wonder whether theology really can be studied and you can have a degree in you know uh, in theology while you don't actually have a spiritual life and you know, a good spiritual life. So the problem is when uh, the church become influenced heavily by the people who uh, are not spiritual, look what happens is that we end up with shorter liturgies, like what happened in the church of, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. No fasting. Uh, you know, we start losing the dogma, we start losing faith, and at the same time, we start seeing things like happened to the Anglican Church, which is homosexual bishops, not just priests, homosexual bishops being ordained. And saying, yeah, yeah, there's nothing in the Bible that says that uh, homosexuality is wrong and becomes what do people want? The church starts caring for what the people's needs and what the people want, not what the Lord has said, not what the Lord has requested us to do. So our attitude and our focus becomes a little bit different to the people. So this is the last church. And at the end, we're going to go through the, you know, the order of the churches and we'll see a certain pattern going on that make us concerned for our spiritual lives. But at this church, the spiritual state is at the worst, and as we're going to see, that the Lord immediately does not find anything nice about this uh, bishop, and he immediately rebukes him. Because again, the church is trying to please people, not to please God. That becomes the same thing for me. If I, everything I do is to make sure that I'm not upsetting people, I'm not disturbing others, I'm not being offensive to anybody, I'm politically correct, I may end up to be offensive to God, but not, uh, but not to people. And I think one of the main issues, one of the main problems for the church, as we want to see, that the feel of being satisfied and no need for anything. I am good. I have reached a state that I'm good. And I think that's also around us today. It's a common problem and a common attitude that's going on. That What do you want from me? I'm doing good. You know, If you ask people, how are you doing? Good. They don't even say, thank God. No, I'm good. Yeah. And they don't need anything else from the outside. Uh, they believe to be that this bishop is uh, called Eurelius or uh, Spharius, the martyr. So even the bishop may have been a martyr, may have you know, been a good, but again, the way he's dealing with the church, the way his responsibility of the church makes a big difference. So let's go with the verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. So the word Amen is the truth itself. It's not that I'm being, uh, when we say Amen at the end of everything, which means I believe, or I concur with what's being said. But this is, Christ here is saying, I am the Amen. I am the truth itself. And he said before, I am the the truth, uh, the the uh, and the road, the... Yes, truth, way, and life. Thank you. Uh, so he is the faithful, and he is the faithful witness. He's not just the truth, but he is a faithful witness. So what is he witness of? 
Remember we said that in the first chapter? Okay. Quiz time. Pop quiz, five points. He's witness to the word of God. The word of, you know. He's, he is a witness to the you know God's love. He's witness witness to his purity. He's witness you know to his wisdom. You know, and we've been through that uh, before, so we can go back to the notes of the first chapter. So, why did again one of the main things we're concentrating on for every church, the problem of the church? Why did God appear that way? The way to repent and the reward. So, if the problem of this church is lukewarmness and feeling that I'm good, I don't need anything else. Why does the Lord appear and say, I am the Amen, I am the truth? What is His purpose of appearing this way? See, if I don't feel I need God, I think I have everything, then I don't know what the truth is. I'm lost and I have a false kind of truth that makes me live in my own world that seems to be everything is perfect, you know, I can be living in a wrecked house, like those people, for example, during the Katrina hurricane, everything was flooded, they were not going to get water, there's no hope of getting, you know, electricity or anything, but they were okay, they were fine, you know, they thought that everything is going to be fine because they have no communication with the outside world, they have their own image of the world, they thought everything is going to be fine, and they're going to live a happy life, so, no, we're not going to leave, we're going to stay here. The same thing. If I don't know the truth, if I don't know who God is, I'm going to be happy with who I am. Even if I am living in filth, if I'm, I'm living in the lowest state of life. So that's why the Lord appeared and He said, I am the truth. What you are in, what you know, is not really the truth. I am the truth. And the more I know Christ, the more... I can see my iniquity. If I'm living, if I we turn off the lights in this room and, you know, let's say there are mice and, you know, all kind of rodents around, so don't jump on your chairs yet. But let's say, if the, you know, they exist in this room and, you know, there's no light. You're not going to see anything. You're going to feel that everything is wonderful. Right? If we turn on, you know, a match, you're going to see the big stuff, right? And you're going to get rid of it. The more light we add, the more we're going to see. Right? And give you know you know forget big spotlight you know those 500 watt you know spotlights you're gonna see every little thing. Right? So the more we come closer to Christ, the more we we see ourselves how in, you know incomplete we are, how sinful we are, and then we start asking for mercy and we start asking God to cleanse us and to change to change our image. But as long as we don't know the truth. We're hiding, you know, uh, we don't, you know, we're not going to be able to see anything good and we're not going to be able to realize our iniquities. Uh, St. Paul also described Christ as the Amen, if we go to Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in Him are yea and in Him Amen, unto the glory of God by us. So that's in Second Corinthians 1.20. Second part, faithful and true witness. True witness because he's the, you know, the, the word witness is the same, you know, Greek word as martyr. Okay. Uh, witness. 
So a martyr basically is a person who witnessed to Christ by even giving himself up and dying for, for Christ. So Christ is a faithful and true witness, so he is a martyr for truth, and he stood for truth even uh, he was crucified on that. And that also reminds this bishop, I am the true and you know faithful witness because I also died for you and I put my life on the cross for you to be, for you to be holy, not for anything else. So if you cannot understand that, if you cannot benefit from the cross, then there's no hope, there's no salvation for you. So the descriptions here are describing Christ? Yes. Okay. The first verse 14 is describing Christ. I am, so you know. The Amen is Christ, the faithful is Christ, the true witness is Christ. Yes. And the beginning of the creation of God is Christ. Of course. Okay. Right. So, the beginning of creation. Right? Here, the beginning of creation got abused a little bit by uh, Aryan. So, the word Arshi can mean multiple things. Uh, oops, just cancel this. Okay. The word Arshi can mean uh, chief, can mean uh, the head, can mean the beginning, can mean the cornerstone. The first, the the principle or the authority of a group. So when Arius looked at this word, uh, the the head of the creation of God, he said, "Okay, so Christ is the first creation. He's the first one to be created by God. While the true meaning of the word head of the creation, he is the true head of the creation. He is." The head and we're all the body. He's the arch of our creation. Right? The, the one we're, we're made on his image, the prototype, or you know, the one we're made on his image. So this misinterpretation, we need to be careful of how the word arch is used here to, to mean what exactly. So what's the best word for English? Is it the beginning of the creation? Or no, the head of the creation. Should be the head of the creation. Yeah, the head of the creation. That's, you know, correct translation. You can look at Arsh as the beginning of creation. Okay? And even if you look at it as the beginning of creation, he is the beginning of the new creation, same way that Adam is the, the head of the old creation, Christ is the head of the new creation. Or Adam is the, you know, the beginning of the, the old creation, Christ is the beginning of the new creation, which is after the salvation and because the, after the resurrection and after the you know, renewal from the resurrection and the ascension we became the new creation once we receive the Holy Spirit and, and you know we're baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and, you know by the sacrament of Mainun so again here's the head of the creation of God to remind the bishop that he is and his church uh, get their authority from God as well as they are part Christ's body. So, if they feel they don't need anything, how can a hand tell the body, I don't need you? How can a hand, you know, or a finger tell the body, I don't need blood from you, I don't need the nurse from you, I don't need you to control me, I'm independent, I'm good by myself. If you cut the finger and leave it by itself, what's going to happen to it? Rot and die. Die and rot and smells bad and comes off. That's the same thing. If we are separated from Christ, if we don't need Christ, we're good on our own. We end up to be in the same state as 
the you know and part of the body that's cut and thrown away. So and also to remind the bishop that instead of following other rulers and other authorities, you know, and please people, you need to be concerned about the head of the creation. That's the one that you're going to be worried about. I, verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were, uh, I would that you were cold or hot. Let's, let's look here because, uh, Abu Natadrus has a lot of opinions about this uh, particular definition of cold and hot. And let's go through it. One by one. So what does cold and what does hot mean? Let's think about it for a little bit. Cold and hot spiritually. Okay, so what does it mean? It's definitely spiritual. It's not that, you know, because you live in the North Pole and you live at the equator, God is going to like you or dislike you. So what does cold spiritually mean? Hot, you're doing your best, and I think the common definition of hot, if we're going to look at the, all these opinions, the common definition of hot is that when are we going to be hot? When is something is hot? I want to, I want to make water hot. Where will I put it? Love, next to fire. And what is the fire in the Bible? What is represented by fire in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Right? So if the Holy Spirit is inside me and is working inside me. How I'm going to be? I'm going to be hot. But if I do like what St. Paul said and, you know, do not distinguish the Holy Spirit, extinguish the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen to me? The Holy Spirit is going to die in me. I'm going to be extinguished. No light, no heat. I'm not going to be, you know, hot. I'm going to be lukewarm and then become cold. And then I'm going to live in sin. Let's see what the fathers have said about the the hot and cold. Because again, some people abuse this. They said that, you know, okay, right now I'm lukewarm in my spiritual life, so God said you neither know nor hot. I'm going to, you know, spew you out, so I might, I might as well be cold. So I'm going to go commit sin and live a life of sin to be cold. Devil is very clever. Devil will use abuse every verse in the Bible to make us fall into sin. Like, remember what is that similar to in the other churches that we heard before? No, to experience the depth of Satan, right? To know the depths of Satan. That's a, there was another heresy, you know, in the previous churches that said to know the you know the depths of Satan. To know how bad sin is, so I can hate, yeah, hate sin, and then never do it again. 
But of course, once you commit it once, you'll be stuck. Here, here the same thing. You know, devil will make people think that, you know, it's good for them to be cold. God says you're neither cold nor hot. I don't want to be hot. Uh, it takes me effort. It takes me, you know, abstaining from certain things and all that, and which I like. So I might as well be cold. In this case, still, God is going to like me, right? And that's manipulation of verses. So what did the father say? Uh, okay. The first opinion, cold is the unbeliever who is immersed in evil. And hot is the believer who is inflamed with the fires of God's love. Uh, and lukewarm is neither a believer nor a disbeliever. He's somebody who's, you know... Uh, you know, yeah, you just, you know, yeah, okay, I know God is there. And, you know, as St. James said, you know, uh, you do good, but also the demons know and they, you know, they're scared. Uh, so the person, you know, there is God, there's, you know, repentance, and all that, but he doesn't do anything about it. Right? That's the lukewarm. Second opinion is the cold is the one who's, who refrains from sin for fear of punishment. And the heart is the one who refrains from sin for his love to the Lord. As for the lukewarm, he's empty of both, fear of love. So that can be another interpretation of cold or hot. The third opinion, uh, lukewarm is hesitant between virtue and vice. He can, you know, falls quickly into virtue and falls quickly into vice as well. He's not brave enough to struggle and he also is afraid to stay in sin because he's afraid of the punishment but he doesn't want to struggle so he's sort of lukewarm the fourth opinion the cold you know he's he is he who deep down perceived his weakness and his fallings as the adulteress adulterer woman tax collector the thief and says Moses the black and this kind gets you know inflamed quickly by God and he turns from being cold to a consuming fire we saw for example said Moses the black once he knew God he came and repented you know, Mary of Egypt you know once she knew she repented you know and she changed her way 100% there are people who can be cold or stay you know away from God and once they turn, they turn around 180 degrees and they change their path. And the lukewarm uh, is someone who snores in deep sleeping and think himself is, you know, virtuous, you know, as a disciple of the Lord, but he doesn't really do anything about it uh, and nothing to spread God's word or to live a humble life. So there are, you know, four different ways to look at the words hot and cold. But the summary or the simplest conclusion is, you know, can be people who, you know, cold people who never knew Christ or people who are living in sin and hot is the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and they can act and they can work on uh, God's uh, work in them. And we know that this person is hot because if the Holy Spirit is working in him, then there are the fruits of the Spirit and, you know, gifts of the Spirit and then, you know, we live this life. All right. Okay. Verse 16 
So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is a very strong statement. I don't think we've heard that in the New Testament, something as strong as this word being said. So, which is very scary. We take lukewarmness in the spiritual life as something easy, something normal. So what, you know, I'm going in through a low period. Excuse me. Uh, and so what? What's the big deal? But the Lord sees that as something really, really bad and He is willing to vomit this person. To vomit someone, this me, vomit something means what? I'm, that's inside. First, that the person is inside. Right? It's not outside. The person is inside. And to vomit out is, you know, so I'd say that my daughter, yesterday, you know, two of them actually, vomited yesterday. <laughs> and it smells really bad, let me tell you. It smells really bad. So it's not, you know, it's not something good that comes out. Which means that the Lord is not going to tolerate any of our actions because of this lukewarmness. So if I'm lukewarm, what to do? Yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. What to do? Hmm? Can I just want to comment on what you said before. A lot of people, they're, they're always asking, what does it mean to be good for some reason? It's a problem with people. So when I when I show them that verse about the vomiting out of the, the mouth, I, I, I usually say this to them. You know, you know when you eat something sometimes and it's right, but it tastes okay, so you eat it and it goes all the way in. And like an hour later, you vomit. But he's saying, I vomit him out of your mouth. Like, you know when something's really disgusting, you can't even swallow it? You just put it in your mouth and you spit it back out? I kind of tell him that's how, like, disgusting it is to him. He doesn't even go down if it's that bad. That's and, then, and then, so then I, I, when I say that to them, kind of tell them the whole point is you have to be hot. Obviously, he doesn't want you to be cold. You have to do something before to get out of that state. Even people say that they're, you know, the spiritual life dive up and down. Let's find out more details about this particular situation and let's find out the way that the Lord Himself is advising us to how to get out of being a lukewarm. Right? Let's let's go to verse seventeen. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's the problem of someone who's lukewarm. They think they're good. They think they have no need of anything. You come and tell them, you know, you have to repent. Why do I repent? I'm good. I'm not doing anything bad. What do you want me, you know, to repent of? If you tell them, oh, that that even the, you know, the big saints and all that, they kept living a life of repentance and, you know, until they died and they were very pure, very holy, and all that. I said, well, hey, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I heard someone, you know, saying, you know, it's one time, St. Paul says, the sinners of whom I'm the first. Not as, you know, as bad of a sinner as St. Paul. So, they're trying to compare themselves as, as being a lot better than St. Paul, and they're not the first, you know, they're not the chief sinners. They're, you know, they're sinners, but way back there. So, they're satisfied with what they are. They think they are rich and have no need for anything. 
So, how to deal with this problem? If I have a feeling that I'm good, you know, I'm servant or whatever, you know, I speak, I come to church and all that, but I don't feel that I'm, you know, growing or changing spiritually. How should I deal with that? Here, here's the real description of the spiritual life of that person. And do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor. Miserable, you know, and we didn't even know that we are in a miserable state. You know what it looks like? Somebody who's wearing, you know, the, you know, let's say that there's no electricity in his house. He went in, he grabbed whatever clothes, and he got dressed, and he thinks he's dressed in you know something fancy. He doesn't know that he dressed in rags, and he's going out, you know, for a big party, wearing dirty clothes, torn clothes, and even despite this, while he's going out, he falls into the mud. You know, it's still dark, he goes out and sees, oh, and everything is fine, and he keeps going, and then, you know, he steps in all in front of the shine light, and he discovered himself to be completely dirty, unworthy of going into such, you know, a fancy place, and he's so embarrassed. That's how, we are, how we're going to feel. Right? And again, the main problem is, if you notice, all the examples I was trying to give in has a relationship to the light and Christ is the true light and I, I guess the more Christ comes into my life the more I'm going to discover problems and God is very kind he's not going to shine all his light at once in our life and we're going to see all our weaknesses so we give up and say we can't do anything about it and he's, going to, he's going to take us level by level every time of our you know, spiritual life is going to expose us to one problem let us focus on it. And once we get over this or we you know close to getting close to this, he's going to expose us to something else and then expose us to something else so we can continuously cleaning ourselves. But if he exposes us, imagine that all of a sudden God exposes me to all my iniquities at once. I'm going to, you know, give up and say, I can't fix this and this and this and this and this and this. I don't know, each one of them may take a few years from me, uh, from struggle and changing myself and... Uh, Rehabilitating myself with, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit. So God is, in His wisdom, He only exposes us one thing at a time. But then we can say, it's the devil who always tells people that trick. When people say, I have so many things wrong with me, I'm not going to say, here, I can't handle it. I have this, this, and this all wrong with me. I mean, what good am I? You know, what's the point? That's, that's the, no, one of the typical, you know, tricks of the devil. He makes you, the, what the devil tries to do, he makes you think that when you're going to commit sin, it's going to be guilt-free. Uh, nobody's going to know. And you're going to enjoy it. It's 100% benefit. There's no problem with you know sin. And once you do it, it's exactly the opposite. You feel a lot of guilt. Everybody, You feel that everybody knows, even if nobody knows, but you, you feel that everybody around you and the whole world knows about your problem and knows about your weakness. And there's no way to repent and there's no way to overcome it. So he is very clever in lying, and he is the father of every lie. That's what the Christ himself said about him. So he's going to lie to you and to everyone that, you know, and you've been fighting this sin for the last, you know, few years. I can't say 20, 30 years because you guys are still young. But, you know, you've been fighting this sin for all this long. Give up. You know, I'm stronger than you are. You might as well give up. Uh, I have a question. Well, uh, sometimes when a person 
uh, fights a certain sin for a long, very long time. Why does God not, you know, allow this to happen? To fight a certain sin for a very long time and, and, and you know, still fall into that same sin? Why can't you just cut? He moves it at once? Well, not at once, but at least when the, when the person asks, on the, why, why does it still, it has to remain like a stumbling block? For, for, for what? There are multiple reasons. Uh, one of them is how long we let the sin grow before we start taking it out. Do you guys work in, in the yards or whatever? If you have yards, do you guys work in the yards? I encourage you to do that uh, because that that gives you a lot of understanding of what God is trying to tell us. If I have a weed and I pick this weed as soon as it's you know comes out of the you know, out of the grass or as soon as I spot it, it's going to be very easy. If I leave this weed for a week, for a two, it becomes harder. If I leave it for the whole season, try to come out at the end of the season, guess what? I need a shovel, I need a lot of equipment, I need a lot of strength to get it out. So it depends on how long this sin has been, you know, in my heart, staying there and roots getting in, you know, strong and deep. That's one thing. The other thing is that if I, you know, cry to God for a week or two and then takes it away. Guess what? It's going to be easy to fall into it again because I know it's going to go away quickly. And maybe that happened before in my life that I repented on it and God lifted up the, you know, the trial quickly. But then I came back to it and that's why it's taking me, going to be take me a while because once He lifts it out, I don't want to go back to it again. I suffered long enough. And I know if I go back to it again, I'm going to be under it for a very long time and I'm going to do my best to run away from it. But rest assured that God is always going to give us victory. Even if it seems to be far from us, it's going to, you know, there's always going to be victory. And don't forget, if you're, going to, you know, if you're in sin and you're you know, in the devil's hand and you're trying to get, come away, think the devil's going to let you go easily? No, he's going to keep tempting you more and more and more and making it, you know... Hard for you to come out. Any person, let's say, you know, any person who gets into a wrong relationship, whether this is, you know, with another person, whether it's drugs or alcohol or anything, it's easy to get in, but it's hard to get out. And that's the nature of sin. And that's why from the beginning, God is warning us, do not get into this. Do not start this road because it's hard, it, you know, it's difficult. And it requires more strength to come out. And as we talked before about the three stages of death and how Christ himself had to, you know, to deal with each one of them in a different way, Jairus' daughter, you know, the son of the widow of Nain and Lazarus, and how Christ the first time just said a word and she was up, second time stopped the coffin, touched it, and then, you know, came out the third time he had to, to cry loud for Lazarus to come out. It depends on the stage of sin. So if it's deep inside me, it's going to be a problem. If it's just did it once and then depended on it, it's going to go away and that's it. Okay. So, anything else? Okay. So to go back to this bishop, again, there's a big contradiction between how he f- perceives himself and how he is perceived by God. God perceives him as 
wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's really, really bad shape. So, wretched and miserable, that's how the level, you know, going to make us feel immediately after every time we commit sin. And even we live in sin for a long time, that's how we're going to do it. You know, find all these rich and famous who are indulging in, you know, in sin and so on. What is it like? They have a miserable life. End up going into hospitals. They end up going into psychiatric, you know, help, making some people rich, you know, psychiatrists rich, and they're living a miserable life because that's how the devil gets them in, and that's the, the you know, natural consequence of sin. I am rich. Uh, I can, you know, that not necessarily by money, but it can be by actions, can be by virtue. I feel I'm rich, I feel I have enough virtue, I feel I'm, you know, I'm good enough. I don't do like these other things like, you know, everybody else. Uh, I don't go and uh, take drugs and go, you know, and smoke like these people. I feel I have virtue from inside me, I feel I'm rich. Notice this description and description that was said last week about... Uh, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, that were righteous in the eyes of God. A big contradiction here. And need nothing. No need for salvation, no need for repentance, no need for guidance, no need for, you know, the sacraments. Why? And unfortunately, you find a lot of these people around us, you know, in the church today. Not just outside, but in the church. And the biggest problem is, they do not know. That they are poor, blind, miserable, wretched, and, and all these things. And of course, naked because they don't have Christ's mercy that covers them. So, verse 18. Can somebody read verse 18? Mahani. I counsel you to, to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garment, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye slave, that you may see. Right. I counsel you to buy from me gold. Wait a minute. Didn't God say about this bishop, the two words before that he is poor? How can a poor person buy gold? And what is he going to buy it with? He has nothing to buy, right? So how can he buy gold? And he's going to buy it from whom? from God, and not just any gold, no, gold purified by fire, expensive gold, no impurities or anything, pure gold. How is he going to do that if he's poor? He's going to give it to him for free, if he asks. Well, not exactly for free, because he already paid the price. Christ already paid the price for all of us, and he is willing, you know, he's just waiting for us to, to come and ask him. As if, you know, tomorrow President Bush is going to decide that every American is going to get, you know, $100,000. Right? And make the budget deficit worse than it is. Right? Uh, so every American is going to get $100,000 and it's already in the bank. All you have to do is just go and ask for it. If I don't go and ask, I'm still going to be poor. If I go and ask for my money, I'm going to have, you know, $100,000 richer. It's the same thing. 
Christ already paid the price for each one of us. And all what he's looking for is you come and you acknowledge that you need the salvation. Because if you don't, it's not a matter of, you know, pride. It's not a matter of, you know, uh, games. It's not a matter of any of these things. If I don't feel I don't need the salvation, I'm not going to benefit from it. I'm not going to use it. If God gave it free to everyone and people don't need it, why would they change? Why would they try to become in the image of Christ and why would they accept Him as a Savior? I don't need to. I'm good. I'm already rich. Okay. So Christ already paid the price. And again, the word counsel here shows that it's an advice. He's not forcing him to do anything. It's not a, I'm ordering you to go and buy gold from me. No, I counsel to you. So even if the person, in the worst case, and God is trying to help him, he's not forcing him to accept. And here the, our free will comes in as part of this whole uh, scheme of things. Gold purified by fire. Who is the gold? What is gold? What does gold stand for in the Old Testament and New Testament? Gold is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And purified by fire because he was he went through the cross and he went through fire all by himself. So if you even if you look at the, the Old Testament, even the Ark of Covenant, he was made of wood, represents the humanity, and was covered from the inside with gold, represents the divinity. So gold and wood, and if you notice gold and wood don't mix together. You can't have something that's a mix of gold and wood. It's two independent substances. They don't mix or mingle right, for a moment or a twinkle of an eye. Okay? So that's the same thing as the divinity and the humanity. They did not mix together. I mean, God gave us all the explanations already in the Bible. We do not need to invent anything new. The only thing we need to do is go read it and understand what the Bible is telling us. But that's when we go to Leviticus you know, uh, some other time, some other lifetime. So that's gold purified with fire, that's Christ himself who endured suffering on our behalf. White cloth is the purity and sanctification. And that's again, why do we wear white cloth in uh, the church? Because a sign of purification and the sanctification we get received from Christ. Eye ointment, which is, you know, salve as it uh, was written or read a minute ago. What is that eye ointment? What is going to make me see? We're just saying to him, I was blind, I could not see. So what, what is going to make me see? Not physically, but spiritually. Holy Spirit, and God's Word. God's Word is the one that's going to open my eye. If I read the Bible and I know what's right and what's wrong, that's what's going to open my eye. If I don't read the Bible, if I keep the Bible, my Bible closed and dusted somewhere on the shelf, I will never try to uh, and try, never try to read it. I will never understand what 
Christ is trying to tell me and how I'm going to be improving all my life. Now look at, not contradiction, but look at the beauty of what God is trying to uh, deliver a message to this bishop. You know, read verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Uh, After God tells him, you are wretched, miserable, poor, naked, all these things, God still loves him. The only reason God is doing that is that because I love those who I love, I rebuke and chasten. So, even if the person is in the midst of sin, even if the person is bad or what 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 we call bad, or what we think of as bad, God is still loves that person. God is still going in and seeking that person and trying to reach them. And that should be the guide of our relationship with other people. That even you know, people like Osama bin Laden, God is still trying to get them and trying to save them. Well, let me ask you something. There was the... Uh, is it the Clidianos? Mean Wali Ansina. Wali Ansina. The governor of Ansina. Arianos. This, you know, governor, he was famous of torturing the martyrs and trying to break them, basically. Anyone who stands, you know, and does is not, bro- you know, broken in the Roman Empire, they send them to Arianos. And he takes care of them big time and ends up killing them. If you listen to Synexarium, this person is always there with most of the martyrs. That he, you know, Yanis Wali and Sina is the one who made them suffer. Guess what happened in the end? Converted. Converted, and he became a martyr himself. God waited on him until he's done with his mission of sending all these people to heaven, and then he believed himself and became Christian. And he was martyred himself. Read historians in Xarian. It's very good. So, yes, God is trying to ask everybody for, you know, bring everybody for salvation. But, and, but don't forget, I gave them time to repent. Remember? Jezebel? I gave her time to repent. But if they do not repent, what I'm going to do? Come and, you know, declare war on them with the my word, basically. So, if we go back to Proverb 3.12, you know, from whom Jehovah loves, he corrects, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So if you go through trouble in your life, if you find problems, you know, if you find things happening to you that you don't like, and you think that you're trying to follow God, guess what? God loves you, and God's trying to teach you a lesson because he loves you. Not because God hates you, because you know what? The devil is going to try to tell you, look, God hates you. Why would he let you do that? You're a good, righteous person. Why would God allow this to happen to you? Right? But that's, uh, that's something that always, always in front of us. If God loves us, he's rebuking us. And we have to accept this rebuke 
and chastising so we can benefit and improve. Again, be zealous and repent. Uh, if I'm zealous to God's way, if I adhere to God's way, I will notice, I will not deviate, I will not think that I'm you know, a great person, I'm a righteous person, because I'm always going to be trying to be uh, following God correctly. Uh, some of the things, just to mention Lent, uh, the fasting a little bit, during fasting, we try, you know, the Father is trying to tell us, you know, be zealous, be accurate about what you, you know, eat and what you not eat, what you do and what you don't do. I mean, it's not those little bit of way that's going to make us uh, go to heaven or, or go to hell or whatever, but it's the attitude when I'm being careful and zealous about everything I do, everything I eat, and trying to keep myself from abstaining from certain food. It's not that because the food itself is going to get me to heaven or not. It teaches me how to be zealous, even in the little things, even those you know less than two percent, you know, whey products and and eggs and stuff like that. I'm you know strict with myself if I'm you know trying to be you know as strict with myself as possible about these things. I'll end up to be strict with myself and some my thoughts, you know, and my anger, and my desires, and my speech, and my hearing, and my you know, what I see, and so on. So little bit by little bit, I build up. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. When did we hear this before? Can we look at uh, Song of Songs? Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. This whole story about uh, I stand at the door and knock. shows us that God wants to come in. He wants to be part of our lives. But He cannot force Himself in. Not He can. He doesn't want himself to force Himself in. God wants to be part of our careers if we let Him. But if we 
invite him in, he'll come in and he's going to bless us, he's going to give us everything. Some other part he says that, you know, whoever lets me in, I and the Father come in and have a, you know, a, you know, a dinner at his, or a banquet at his uh, place, right? So, this is the same thing. Here, Christ is, you know, as you know, Song of Songs, it's a dialogue between Christ and the human spirit. Here, Christ is knocking on the door, asking the human spirit to open up. And look at the wonderful expressions he's using. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. All these wonderful expressions that the Lord is calling us with. And he is saying, I am, you know, my head is filled with dew because he's been standing outside for a very long time. And, you know, the dew is covering his head. Uh, my locks was the drops of the night. And our excuse is, I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I already went to bed, how can I get out? I've washed my feet, how shall I defile them? Okay. Again, I've done everything, you know, perfect so far. Why would I get up? Why would I define myself? I'm good. I wash my feet. I'm good. And then it describes here that my beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door. And as you can see this picture, the lock is from the inside. It's not from the outside. God, you know, if he wants to open it, of course he can, but he is waiting for us to open and there's no handle actually on, on in the picture. Look, you know, carefully. There's no handle from the outside to open the door. The only handle is from the inside. I'm the only one who has control to open my heart. If you remember what we said last week about Saint Augustine, God who saved you, oh, I'm sorry, the God who created you without you cannot save you without your will. God who created you without your will cannot save you without your will. But and the problem is, when my heart was moved for him, I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers flowing with myrrh on the handle of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, and my beloved had left. Sometimes the Lord leaves us, as we feel that we're looking for him and we can't find him, so we can appreciate when the time he is coming close to us and near to us and we reject him next time we're not supposed uh, to do that and we're supposed to accept him and actually go out and seek him and as, as you continue with chapter 5 of Song of Songs we'll find that the the beloved went in to seek him and suffered and was chastised uh, by the guards and uh, Dr. Nabil Bay have a wonderful sermon that he gave us a couple of years ago to the servants, particularly about this part. I recommend everyone to, to hear it. It's in English. Okay. If anyone hear my voice, okay. in John chapter 10, Christ is saying, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they, you know, they follow me. The problem is God is speaking to us. And he's constantly speaking to us. The issue is whether we hear him or not, whether we want to hear him or not. It's like a TV, you know, a movie, uh, I'm sorry, a radio station. 
A lot of voices are coming out and it depends on where do I tune my radio to. You guys are not used to the knobs and all that. You're used to scanning and, and stuff like that. So it's hard to explain that. Probably in a few years it's going to be a lot difficult to explain it. Uh, but if I try to tune my uh, receiver to a certain station, I'll hear it. If I deviate from that, you know, center frequency, I'm going to hear noise. I may hear multiple stations together. Okay. If I go away completely from the station, I'm not going to hear anything about it. I have the tuner. I have. If I want to adjust it, I can adjust it. And how do I hear God's voice? Where do I hear God's voice? In the Bible, in the church. Know, from the sermon, Saint Anthony, when he was still uh, living outside uh, the outskirts of the city, he, because of his uh, sensitivity, he was able to hear God's voice from even from someone uh, who was a sinner. And she told him, you know, why are you here? You know, true monks go to the middle of the desert and live there. And he, you know, accepted that as God's voice, and he went to the desert and he lived there, and he became Saint Anthony that we know. So. If I'm tuning in to God, I will hear His voice anywhere. And here is a wonderful reward. Who do you invite for dinner? People you like, right? Who will you allow to come into your house, stay home late, and you know, take their, their time? It's people you like, people you enjoy their company, people you get used to, and so on. And here Christ say, if anyone hear my voice, I will dine with him and he with me. Of course, in our humble state, we're going to invite him into what? Into our hearts where he will dwell in our heart. And next chapter, we're going to see what really dwells mean. Uh, but when is the big banquet? At end of Revelation, right? And Christ implied to that banquet when he was giving the parables about uh, this rich man who wanted to have a banquet for his son. Uh, and he sent everyone, sent to invite everyone, and those people who accepted got in and were wearing the, you know, the wedding clothes, and those who were not were, were cast out. So that's the banquet that we're all going to be invited to. We're all invited to, and hopefully we're all going to be there with Christ himself at the head of the table. Mm -hmm. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down in my father's throne. Now, again, what is the problem of this person, this bishop or this church? What does Christ describe them? Wretched, miserable, poor, naked. What is the reward? To sit on the throne with Christ. Imagine what kind of honor and glory. You know, to sit just on a on a high chair somewhere. Right? Not even not just that. You're gonna sit on the throne of God, sitting next to Him. And we're gonna see how wonderful is the throne of God and who surrounds this throne but imagine you are sitting yeah for example let's say Pope Shenouda you know comes into our church and he's sitting on his you know we'll get him in you know, a nice high chair and he calls you out of everyone he said come and sit next to me 
what are you gonna, you're gonna feel but you know in heaven right and I add I'm sitting next to the Pope on the top in front of everyone and everyone sees me and everyone is looking at me I'm not talking about Pope Shenouda no we're talking about the Lord himself on his throne that from which he's gonna judge everyone that's the reward we have that's the reward that's expecting us So the prize we have is really limitless and there's no, uh, if we comprehend what we're going to receive at the end, a lot of the here things on earth is going to go by quickly and it's not going to be of great value to us because we're going to be focusing on the main thing. All right, let's uh, do the following. With this church, we have come to the end of... Uh, all the churches end of chapters 1, 2 and 3 let's try to see what we're going to summarize everything together we have like 15-20 minutes so let's try to use that come on man Alright, looks like. Alright, let's go back and try to remind ourselves with the churches. What was the first church? Lost the name is Ephesus, and the problem is they lost the first love. Okay. Let's turn this on. Okay. Then, what is the second uh, church? Smyrna, the bitter, and what was the problem in that church? Being persecuted. It didn't have any quote-unquote problems of its own, but it was persecuted, it was a persecuted church. The third church, Pergamos, which represented what? Marriage. Marriage between... Church and state, in a way, and for our spiritual life, it represents uh, what kind of uh, marriage, what kind of relationship? Which one? External. External, depending on external sources, and depending on material things or other people outside the ch- outside Christ. No, it's 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 don't worry, don't worry. Alright. And then what comes after that? Which church comes after that? Theatra. Theatra. And what's the problem in the church? By the way, we forgot to say something about Pergamus. We forgot to say something important about Pergamus. In addition that the they were depending on external sources, what else was going on there? Holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And what else? Something about the same. Teaching of Balaam. Teaching of uh, who taught Balak how to let the children of Israel commit adultery and uh, fall into sin. 
Okay. What's what's next? Here the again the we said that the source it was external, depending on external forces that tempted them, that offered them to commit sin and so on, and they unfortunately fell for it. That was internal, I thought. I'm sorry, inter- uh, no, external. The is internal. We're talking about pergamos right now. Oh, pergamos. So forget to go pergamos. Theatra is, inter- you know, is similar to pergamos, but the problem here is internal. It's no longer dependent on external sources to cause them to sin. Now, the sin is generated from within. The heresy is generated from within. What's the church after that? Sardis, which means the the few or the remainder. And what's the problem there? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And little faith. Okay. And weakness in the church. And also, uh, heresies are internal. Right? How about uh, Philadelphia? Church of Philadelphia. They have little strengths, yes. Very good. And lazy in work, so they end up not being able to struggle and end up to giving up quickly, you know. And we talked about that. Now the last church, church is lukewarmness in the spiritual attitude. If you notice, there is a gra- you know gradual decrease in the spiritual level, and it all started by depending on external forces. Immediately after, you know, the church of uh, Smyrna, after the persecution, they started depending. Social programmers, they started depending on external forces, and that caused one thing to lead to the other, to lead to the other, and until they became completely lukewarm. There are certain people who look at these churches as historical progress of the church. Okay. So they say, okay, the first church, Ephesus, is a, you know the time of the apostles. Uh, and then the second church is the time of the persecution, the great persecution, until it ended with uh, Constantine. Thank you. And then Pergamus is after Constantine, where the church dependent on the rulers and the kings to help it. And that's the church of Pergamus. And then comes after that Theatra, where the church was weak, and the heresy start coming from the inside, and the problems started to generate from the inside. And then Sardis, that's the the few that people, very few people are left in the faith because uh, of the little faith of the people and the hypocrisy that's facing them. And then uh, the Church of Philadelphia is when. The Jews will re-enter the church, and because we talked about that, that the Jews, the, especially in the Church of Philadelphia, is the Jews are the synagogue of Satan. But I'm going to co- make them come back and worship 
and, and you know at your feet. So some of the fathers think that this church, uh, Philadelphia, represents the reunification of the church, the you know the church of the Jews and the church of the Gentiles. That's why it's Philadelphia, the brotherly love. And then the last church, which is the big problem at the end of the, the days, is when the Antichrist will come and basically declare himself in the church. That's how some people view that. But again, our main concentration is on the spiritual aspect, not on the historical aspect, on all these, these things, because a lot of people can have different opinions about this historical uh, perspective. Okay, so let's check the homeworks. Now all of you have been diligent and been trying to collect the data as much as possible. Alright, so what kind of heresies the first three chapters dealt with? How many heresies the first three chapters dealt with? Great, many, but what are they? <laughs> what are they? That's what we talked about today, you know? Yeah. All right, that's what you remember. It could be... Oh, let's talk now. Oh, like Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. Um, we said... It's not really heresy, really. Um, Macedonians. Like, didn't we talk about the voice? No. Polinarians. No, no. You don't, you don't, you know, recite what you learn on Wednesday on Sunday. <laughs> All right. Now we need to do some due diligence and you know keep track because that's going to keep the whole thing interesting and you know uh, of interest a little bit. Otherwise, it's going to be. And that that's I think also encouraging for everyone uh, to do that. And also, what we do in the church, what you know, what the way we wear. The priests and the deacons, and actually, again, some churches, everyone in the church wears white, and the newly baptized wear white. We copy that from the book of Revelation. The Alpha and the Omega that's written in the church, and we use that in the church a lot, that's from the beginning here. Some of the heresies that we dealt with is the equality of the Son to the Father, having the same attributes, same descriptions from the Old Testament as the New Testament. Uh, a lot of these things have been uh, addressed in the first couple of chapters. Yes. There's another one about the millennium reign. Okay. Millennium reign. We're going to live with that for a very long time. We're going to be addressing that constantly. The millennium uh, Hopefully, no. Hopefully, we'll finish that before the next millennium. Yeah, because I don't think we're going to live until the next millennium anyway. All right. Do you guys want to start chapter uh, four, or or uh, just uh, give an overview of what's going to be covered next? No, it's okay. I don't think so. This guy has a mind of its own. So, uh, we the book of Revelation is divided into groups, groups of seven. We'll finish the first group of seven, which is the seven churches. Next, we're going to come to the next. First, we're going to stop. The vision so far have been on earth. Now we're going to transfer, and we're going to go see what heaven is like, and more important, what the throne of God looks like. And when we can focus on that one, and then we're going to see the the book with the seven seals, and we're going to see the seals being opened, and after the seals, 
we're going to see other stages that come afterwards. So the next stage we're going to go through, we're going to go through two stages next. The first one is the throne uh, in heaven and where God's throne is. And then the next, after that is going to be the seven seeds where the horsemen and, you know, one of the seeds, the horsemen and all these wonderful stories that we're going to be reading. So it's going to get interesting and exciting. And again, there are going to be a lot of things that relate to three main things. The dogma of the church, the tradition of the church, and comforting promises that we're going to try to understand and keep track of. Okay. Any questions on the churches? Pop quiz next week? This is study, right? Bible study, type of quizzes. Of course. Anyway, we will be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit with now.